Well, I would uh, like you to join me in 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy 6. We will be looking at verses 11 through 16. Um, 11 through 16 of 1 Timothy 6 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 993. The title of our sermon this morning is The Good Confession. The key words for our worshipers in, our worshipers in training are pursue, fight, and eternal life. In August of 1820, Captain George Pollard Jr. left Nantucket Island with a crew of 21 men. And they, they went out hunting for whales, for oil. So that was in August. They left on November 20th of that year after a few different trials and tribulations that they saw their way through. On November 20th, a massive, enraged bull sperm whale rammed the ship twice, sinking it. And about 3,000 miles from land, the crew sailed away from the wreckage in three small boats with provisions to last each boat about Two months. Nine months later, five men made it home. It is a thrilling tale to read. You can read about it in a book called The Heart of the Sea by Nathan Philbrick. You can also watch it in movie form if you are so inclined, though I don't recommend it. But you can read the book. It's a great book. It's a tale that, it, that he tells, and it's a real story. It serves, actually, as the, the inspiration of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And in this book, as, as Philibrick writes, it, he writes of a story of endurance, of self-control, anger, intensity, and cruelty, and in some ways, above all, suffering. Now, initially... Uh, Captain Pollard was hailed as a hero when all was said and done. Uh, or not all was said and done, but with the, when, he, when they got back, the initial reports, the stories that were told, he was hailed as a hero. But as time went on, and, um, and one of the crew members who survived um, told his story, there were certain aspects of, uh, of the story that uh, came to light And it became much less clear whether Pollard was a hero or a villain. Whether he was a man of valor or cowardice. You see, it seems that despite having survived the ordeal, some of his actions, while lost at sea, brought reproach and shame upon him and the whole narrative. Now, truthfully, there are components of this story that sort of bring reproach and shame upon all the men who survived. But as the captain, there were certain things expected of Pollard that he didn't do or things that weren't expected that he did do that, um, that, that perhaps, if the rumors are true, are especially shameful. The rumors of Pollard's conduct ultimately served to bring him largely into disgrace among his people. 
right? Being suspected now as a, perhaps a coward and not a hero, he was reduced in the end to the lowest rung of Nantucket's social ladder, being held in disgrace by many. And this brings us to 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 11. But here in this passage, we aren't talking about bringing reproach upon ourselves or upon our legacy, but upon something much greater, something far more important. Now, if you recall, the overarching theme throughout all of 1 Timothy concerns Timothy's need to combat false teaching. This false teaching that had arisen in the church at Ephesus after Paul's departure a mere four years earlier. To underscore that main point, Paul contrasts throughout the letter several key aspects of what the church was supposed to be with what it had become. All throughout we see him emphasize the importance of things like sound teaching, prayer, godly leadership, and good relationships. In the church. But then, beginning in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul enters into the final portion of his letter and offers a final discussion and indictment uh, of the false teachers. And he describes them as sick men who were leading others into ruin and destruction through the foolish chase of riches. Imagining that godliness, the pursuit of godliness, was merely a means to financial gain. Paul turns now, having dealt with and addressed the false teachers one last time, he turns now to Timothy. To focus on Timothy once more, on his life and his doctrine, and he tells him, Flee these things. Flee the things that the false teachers, these heretics, had brought upon the church. Lest he bring reproach upon not just himself, but upon God's very word. So let's read verses 11-16, through 16, outline them, and then get to work. He says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We just go home after that, right? I mean, what more can you say? Well, I'll try. Here's so three things that I want you to observe with me from this wonderful passage. The first, in verses 11 and 12, 
we will see Paul charge Timothy and urge him to flee the sinful cravings of his enemies and to pursue personal holiness. Second, in verses 11 through, uh, sorry, 13 through 14, Paul reminds Timothy that the reputation of the gospel, not just his own reputation, but the reputation of the gospel is ultimately at stake in this charge, in this need to pursue holiness and to flee wickedness. And third, in verses 15 and 16, Paul is once more, we see, moved by his theology to doxology. His theology moves him to praise the eternal God, and by extension, he is inviting Timothy and the rest of us to join him in glorying in this magnificent God. So first, look with me in verses 11 and 12 where we see Paul urged Timothy not to share in the sinful cravings of the false teachers, but instead to take hold of eternal life, the eternal life to which he had been called and of which he had made the good confession. Notice, first of all, the word but in verse 11. With the use of this word, Paul sets up a major contrast with what he has just said in verses 3 through 10 about the money-loving heretics at Ephesus with their sick, arrogant, and quarrelsome hearts. Paul tells Timothy, the man of God, to flee such things. Now this designation, man of God, is important to note, though briefly, right? Man of God is a familiar designation in Scripture, which had been applied to men like Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, and Elisha, and others. So from the outset, in this moment where Paul shifts once more into a very personal personal uh, touch, personal application to Timothy. He doesn't use his name, but he calls him man of God. And he reminds him, Timothy, you don't work alone. You are not in isolation, but you are living and working and ministering in a long line of men who have been called and loved by God. And he calls him here to flee The cravings that cause many to wander away from the faith and to pierce themselves with many pangs. And this command to flee serves as a third uh, recommended response to sin and sinful temptation that we find in 1 Timothy. If you recall back in chapter 1 verse 3, we saw Paul tell Timothy to combat such teaching, contradict it. In chapter 4, verse 7, he, he, he basically insinuates that it's worth mocking. The, the false teaching of these men were uh, irrelevant. It was pointless, goofy doctrines that should be mocked. But here in chapter 6, verse 11, we see, we see this. What? Run from it, Timothy. Run from it with all your might. Flee. So here's, here's a question. How do you treat sin and sinful teaching? Do you linger over it like Esau did when Jacob offered him his bowl of soup in exchange for his birthright? 
or do you leave it like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife invited him to lay with her? Do you flee? But fleeing isn't enough. We can't just run aimlessly away from such things. Right? Notice what Paul says to Timothy next. He says, flee the sinful cravings for worldly goods in the teaching that promotes such things. But then he says what? Pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. My brothers and sisters, we, we can't just put off sinful thinking and feeling and choosing. We must put on holy thinking and feeling and choosing. And Paul continues adding depth to this exhortation. He says, don't just flee sinful cravings. Don't just pursue personal holiness. But do these things, Timothy, as though your life depends on it. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. There's no secret formula to the Christian life. According to John Stott, we simply run from evil and we pursue righteousness with all we've got. And looking at, at these verses here, I'm going to shout out to my grammar nerds for a minute. What voice, this is a rhetorical question, but think about it. What voice are these verbs in, these imperatives, active or passive? They're active, Right? He's calling him to do something, not to have something be done. The Christian life, therefore, isn't a passive one. It's an active one. You must flee sin. You must pursue personal holiness. You must fight the good fight. You must take hold of eternal life. But do you notice, there is one passive verb here. Do you see it in verse 12? He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Right? He doesn't say, Take hold of the eternal life to which you called yourself, but to which you were called. We'll address the importance of this in a minute. There are three questions I want to ask about this phrase, taking hold of eternal life to which you were called. First, what does Paul mean that Timothy was called to eternal life? Second, what does it mean to take hold of such life? And third, what does Timothy's being called, like when does his being called happen in relationship to his responsibility to take hold? So I'm going to start with that third question, right? What's the relationship between being called and taking hold? According to Paul, Timothy needs to take hold of the eternal life to which he had already previously, prior to the time of writing, been called. So being called takes place before taking hold. Make sense? That's important. So what does it mean to be called then? Well, calling is a term that the Scripture uses in a few different ways. But as it concerns salvation, it has two specific reference points. There is the outward call and the inward call. 
The outward call is a person hearing the gospel. So, for instance, if you are here this morning, and you all are, you're hearing the gospel. There is an outward call, right? And particularly, if, you, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you are receiving the outward call as you listen to me. You are being called to faith in Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and died for sinners so that he might save sinners just like you. That's the outward call. The inward call is what happens when God, by His Holy Spirit, awakens your conscience and stirs faith within you to respond to the outward call with faith and repentance. The, the concept of this is, is discussed at length by Jesus in John chapter 6. In this case, Timothy had been called inwardly by God, which enabled him to respond with faith to the outward call of the gospel message. We see his response in the last part of verse 12, where he makes the good confession. So he's called by God internally to respond with faith. But what does it mean to take hold of eternal life? This life to which he was called, right? And eternal life isn't just never-ending, but it's a quality of life. It's sinless life, blissful life with God. So what does it mean to take hold? Well, to take hold means to fully appropriate or to pursue in a proactive, even aggressive or tenacious manner. This word, take hold, it actually conveys a rather violent image Timothy, per Paul's instructions here, is to grab hold of eternal life for all it's worth. Uh, an image that comes to my mind are the, 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 uh, the bull riders, right? The gate opens and the bull starts kicking around. And what are they doing? They are holding on for dear life. So Timothy is to take hold. Violently, even with every spiritual fiber of his being. He holds on to eternal life. But he doesn't just take hold. We we see that previously to this now present reality of needing to take hold, he had already made the good confession about this eternal life. And he did so in the presence of many witnesses. We'll discuss the good confession again in a bit when we see it in verse 13. But for now, I just want to highlight one particular aspect of Timothy's confession that I think is desperately needed in our culture. Was Timothy's confession, the good confession, was it public or private? It was public. Right? He made it in the presence of many witnesses. Christianity, contrary to what many seem to think today, is not a matter of private opinion. While it is true that each Christian does have a personal relationship with Jesus and stands before God exclusively on the basis of Christ's work imputed to him or her through faith, there isn't a shred of evidence in the Bible that your faith is a matter of, it's not a mere private affair. And so Timothy makes the good confession which we'll define in a moment, 
in the presence of many witnesses. And so do we. What is Paul getting at in these two verses here? It's, it's pretty simple. He says, Timothy, you must actively pursue things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Don't stray from the course, brother, by what these men are teaching, by the, the, the appealing word of these heretics. Flee it and take hold of eternal life on the basis of the effectual calling that you have already received from God, which produced in you a faithful public response to this gospel message. So that's Paul's word to Timothy himself. We see secondly in verses 13 and 14, we see Paul shift from focusing on Timothy's need to guard himself and reminds him that he needs to guard the reputation of the very Word of God. And here we'll see two aspects of this charge that he gives him in verse 13. First, I want you to notice the severity or the weight of the charge. And second, the content of the charge. So first, Paul explains the severity of the charge in two ways. First, he reminds Timothy that he has been charged. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Second, he's been charged in Christ's presence who made the good confession himself before Pilate. So Timothy, Paul says, this charge I'm giving to you. Take it seriously. God is watching you, Timothy. The God who gives life to all things, your very life depends on the one in whose sight you are working. Could the stakes be any higher? We've seen what happens to those who forget this reality. Right? 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-7, through 7, what happens? Uzzah reaches out in defiance against God's command, and does what? Touches the Ark of the Covenant. And he is struck dead. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament are both struck dead when they lie to the Holy Spirit about how much money they had given to the church. That was Acts chapter 5. So Paul reminds Timothy here, take it seriously. God gives life to all and can just as easily take it from all things. However, I don't believe that we should take this reminder, this charge, as it's described here, being in the presence of God, I don't believe that's primarily a negative thing. Paul's motivation in this statement is not merely to persuade Timothy to live in fear that one wrong move could cost him his life. I think it's actually, it is quite the opposite. Paul's point, Timothy, do you realize that the God who graciously gives life to all things, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, do you know that he watches over you? In his very presence you live. The creator and stainer of all existence has taken an interest in your life, Timothy. And in your work and in your ministry. So run. So fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. Because the one who gave you that life is watching over you. 
And so Timothy and us, by extension, we carry out our very lives in the presence of the life-giving God. But Paul also says this. He says, This charge I give you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who made the good confession before Pilate. So what is this good confession? It's likely both the content of what is confessed and the act of confessing itself. Right? With his very life on the line, Jesus tells Pilate that the reason he came into the world was what? To bear witness to the truth. John 18. Pilate then asked, well, he asked the one who is truth itself, he says what? What is truth? So what, what is truth? What is this truth that Jesus has come to bear witness about? Well, it is the confession that the truth is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus bore witness to this fact in his life, in his ministry, and his death. It's, he, he confessed it, the it, right? Well, that's the good confession. What's the truth? But the fact that he confessed it has led to his death. And Timothy, we're told, we saw earlier, right? Tim, Timothy confessed it as well. So why, why does Paul mention Jesus here and his confession? It would seem that it serves as gospel motivation for obedience in Timothy's life. He says, Timothy, not only do you live and run and work and fight and take hold in the presence of God who gives life to all things. He says, you can keep going and not give up even when it's tempting to do so. Because your Savior made the same good confession when he told the truth before Pilate. Christ, my brother, has walked this road before you and is with you as you walk it now. So he says, don't grow weary, but look to him who testified for you and be for you and stay true to your calling. What about the, what about the content of the charge? Right? It's a little confusing because he starts verse 13 I charge you, and then he, he has this these sort of parenthetical assertion about the presence of God in Jesus, but it's not until we get to verse 14 that we see what the actual charge is. What does he charge him to do? He says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. One of the things that Paul has been most interested in accomplishing in this letter is to protect the reputation of God's word and his name. Right, if you go all the way back to the beginning, we saw that the foolish talk of the false teachers in chapter 1 was embarrassing. And their sinful living and their misuse of the law and the gospel invalidated their teaching and it brought harm on others, shipwrecking their faith. In chapter 2, we saw that men and women uh, in Ephesus there, they were casting dispersion on the gospel message by gathering for worship with hypocrisy in their hearts and vanity in their eyes. In chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy that there is a certain way of life that befits one who belongs 
to the family or the household of God, since the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. In chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy that he should train for godliness, avoiding irreverent silly myths, and he reminds him that such devotion regards not only his own salvation, but those who hear him as well. He wants Timothy to be careful not to let himself become a byword among the people, but instead he should set an example for the believers in his speech, in his conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In chapter 5, Timothy is admonished that he should admonish sinning elders. Why? So that others may stand in fear. In chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to exhort the bondservants in Ephesus not to revile by their actions, what? God's name and the teaching. Over and over again, Paul speaks of the reputation of God and his gospel message all throughout this letter. And he returns to that theme here and he charges Timothy not to bring reproach upon God or his word by a sinful life. And notice, too, this is to be done until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy, this is a work of perseverance. This is a work that cannot be completed in an afternoon. This is a work done today, tomorrow, and every day after that until the Lord appears. Timothy must not, nor must any who come after him grow weary. And so how about you? How about us? Are you weary? Are you bringing reproach upon God's Word? Perhaps a better way to ask it would be, what area of your life would most likely, is most likely to bring reproach upon God's name if left unchecked or if discovered by others? Is there a corner of your heart and your life that you'd be ashamed of others to see? Are, are, you, are you regularly viewing things on your phone, your computer, or, or iPad that you ought not to watch? Are you, are you holding angry or bitter thoughts toward your mother or your brothers or your sisters, your father, that you wouldn't want to be broadcast for others to know? What about your spending habits? What does your budget communicate about God? If you were to give someone access to view your bank account, your, your bank statements, what conclusion would he or she draw about what matters in your life? Are there any purchases that might bring shame upon you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Not just how do you budget your money, but what, how do you budget your time? What about your use of time? What, what does your budgeted schedule communicate about God? If you were to tell someone how you spend the 168 hours you get every single week, what conclusions could be drawn about what matters to you? Are there large chunks of time in your life that would bring reproach upon God's Word if others knew how you were spending them?
Do we give others a cause to cast reproach and judgment upon the commandment of God by the way that we live? I pray not. But if so, we must remember that there is plenteous grace and forgiveness for sinners like us. And we can run to Jesus Christ and find a ready reception in our Savior. And we can find help from one another. Paul's point in these two verses here is to urge Timothy, to urge all who read this letter to remember once more that the way that someone lives sends a very important message to the world about God, His name, His fame, and His worth. And speaking of God's fame, look with me in the third place where we see Paul turn once again to doxology. Paul has commanded Timothy to keep the commandment unstained until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which Paul says that he, that is God, will display this appearing at the proper time. And this little phrase, Paul affirms the biblical teaching that Christ appearing shall occur, one, when it is supposed to occur, and two, at a time unknown to man. We are not given the time that we have left as individuals or as a race. But we are given the assurance that the appearing will happen. So Paul says, live wisely. But this comment that he makes, that God will display the appearing of the Lord Jesus at the proper time, this comment, as so many other, uh, others of Paul, Paul's comments, as they often do, it leads him to uncontainable praise. Which seems kind of weird, perhaps, at first, right? But think about what Paul notices when he says it. What does he remember? What does he reflect on? He reflects on God's sovereign prerogative to share certain information and to keep certain information. And so Paul erupts into praise. He praises the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm not the sovereign. You're not the sovereign. Brian Kemp, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, Homeland Security, none of them are the sovereign. There is one king to whom all kings and all authorities will answer. There is one being in this universe who has life in himself and depends on no one else. And this being is God whom Paul says he dwells in unapproachable light. His moral purity and uprightness is beyond approaching. In his very essence, God 
cannot even be seen. And yet, the minute you hear the God who cannot be seen and never has been seen, you think, wait a second. He did make himself seen. The Son became flesh and dwelt among us. God in His essence cannot and will not ever be seen, but God has revealed Himself to us in a real and meaningful way in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to Philip, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. We're not Philip. So how do we see Jesus? We behold Him in the Word. Right now, we see Jesus who made the good confession for us and before us. And one day, we will behold him face to face. Now for some, and I imagine and pray and hope most in this room, that day will be a day of gravity and gladness. Perhaps for others, it shall be a day of terror and torment. Now, I don't know which is which. You can know for yourself which one it will be. And so ask yourself, which one is it? Friend, which is it? When you see the invisible God made visible in the person of Jesus Christ and look Him in the eyes, will you find Him to be friend or foe? As we mentioned earlier, we are right now being presented with the outward call of the Gospel. To respond in faith means, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will find a friend in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that if, there, if there's someone here this morning who, who, in fact, has only ever heard the outward call and never received and responded to the inward call, I pray that today, this very moment for you, might be that. Friends, you are invited to be a part of God's family. Will you? Will you have God as your father, or are you content with having the devil as your dad? But in the end, whatever, whatever you do, whatever I do, there's one thing that is certain. This life-possessing and life-granting God shall have honor and eternal dominion. And we cannot get in the way of that. Praise be unto Him. I'd like to close by taking just a brief look at Paul's eschatology for a moment. Now, of course, this text is not anywhere close to the, uh, the fullest expression of Paul's doctrine of the last things. But it does show us what Paul's eschatology produces in him. Which is what? Heartfelt praise 
to the sovereign king of eternity. So what about you? What about us? Does your eschatology call forth this kind of response? Whatever whatever you think of the millennium, whatever you think of the world and the societies around the world, however you answer the question of whether or not things are getting worse or getting better or somewhere in between, whatever you think of the book of Revelation, what does it produce in you? Do you see no value and use in thinking about such things? Is eschatology just a big waste of time of pa- uh, and paper and ink? Or perhaps on the opposite end, are you, are you caught up in charts and graphs and newspaper clippings trying to determine if Christ's return is just around the corner? Are you ever watchful of the shape and color and position of the moon more so than your own sin? And the work of God in your heart and in your life? Do you have a room in your house with a giant bulletin board with yarn roving about from one picture and phrase to another and the circlings of a madman? If so, you have a problem. And I advise you to seek help immediately. But seriously... Does our theology produce a Pauline kind of praise in us? If not, it is defective. Period. So, brothers and sisters, let us, like Paul, look to Jesus who made the good confession. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And in the light of his grace and calling upon our lives, take hold of eternal life. The eternal life of which we have made the good confession And may we trust Him to see us through to the end. That whether by life or by death, Christ may be honored in us. And may the Lord keep us from ever casting shame or reproach upon His name by our lives.